If you are, are new with us, uh, what we do each Sunday is, is normally we open a book of the Bible and we preach through it. Uh, we kind of preach through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and today is no different. Uh, like Matt said, we'll be back in, in Luke, Luke chapter 22, and we're not joking. Uh, we started this sermon series uh, at, at the beginning of the church being planted six years ago, and we're going to finish it this year. And then the church will keep going. Don't worry. But we are, uh, we are excited because this series, really, as we move towards Easter, we've been looking at the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, uh, his work, everything that has, has happened. And then there's this kind of change that takes place in, in Luke chapter 22 as we look forward to the Passover, as we look forward to uh, Jesus uh, explaining it, explaining how he fulfills it, his work, the, the, the person that he is, how he is going to be the Passover lamb that, that the nation of Israel and that the whole world has been waiting for. And so this sermon series is called The, the, the Final Passover. And we're just going to look at, at how Jesus, in these last couple of days of his life, uh, fulfills it and, uh, and how it changes our lives for us today. But today, uh, we don't really get to talk about the Passover. We get this... This six verses between Jesus in Jerusalem and, and all the teaching and the, uh, the, the opposition that he's been experiencing from uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and from everybody, and then the Passover. And so it's these six verses that um, are quite interesting. So read them with me, Luke 22, uh, 1 to 6, this is what it says. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. And then they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Uh, one point from our text. Really simple thing. There's one big idea and it's this. That the opposition to God is great. The opposition to God is great. In our passage, we have this, this trinity, this, this trifecta of groups coming together. The, the scribes and the chief priests. We have Satan showing up in our passage and, and Judas coming together to put Jesus to death, to end his, his ministry, his, his work that he's been on about. The opposition to God is great. Everyone in this passage is against Jesus for their own ends, their, their own reasons. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at these people and, and why they're against Jesus, the work that they're doing, and what warnings there are for us in this passage. But we're also going to split up just, just one extra way. The opposition to God is, is great, but there's opposition out there, speaking of, of, of the scribes and the chief priests, those, those positions and those powers, and Satan, that, that, that force out there. We're going to explain that. But then there's also the opposition in here, speaking of the individual, of, of Judas, of, of us. And so, let's start off just by looking at the opposition from out there. The scribes and the chief priests first. Now, I want to just give you a quick rundown of, of the chief priests. Uh, if you remember this, great. If you don't, let me just give you a quick uh, refresher. The chief priests were supposed to be these, these men who were in the temple, and they were mediators, so, so the kind of the in-between people between the people of Israel and God. They were the ones who accepted the sacrifices and the offerings. They were the ones who allowed people to come and be made right with God. 
Without the priests, without them doing the job in the temple, there could be no sacrifices, no offerings, no way to atone for sin. So they're very important people. And, and the scribes, uh, sorry, the chief priests, uh, they would have been people who had lineage. That their, their forefathers would have been uh, drawn back all the way to Aaron, the, the Aaron and Moses from, from Exodus, Aaron. And along the line, they would have gone through um, the Zadok, the priests, these, these priests who, when all of Israel was sinning and rebelling and going against God and his word and his ways, uh, they were faithful and obedient. And so there's this promise that, that they'll not fail to, to be, have priests who, who minister before God. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And yet in our passage, what we find is they're, they're conspiring to put the Son of God to death. When you, when you look at their forefathers, when you look at what they were supposed to do, when you look at the role that they had, they were supposed to be people who loved God and feared God first. And yet what you find in our passage in, in verse 2 and verse 6, you find that the, the chief priests are most afraid of the people. And then there's the scribes. The scribes are the lawyers. These were supposed to be the people who taught the word of God, who helped you understand what it means to live out the life that God has called you to, has saved you for. So if you wanted to understand how do you live on the Sabbath or, or what you should do with your animals or, or your servants or what you should do in your marriage, you would go to the scribes and they would tell you, they would help you understand the law so that you could live it rightly. Because if you lived rightly, then you wouldn't be sinning against God. You wouldn't have to go to the temple and atone for your sins. These were the people that you would go to to make sure that you were living the way God had called you to. They would clear up any confusion, any disagreements. These were the people you were supposed to go to to understand the law of God. And yet again, in our passage, you see that the people who were supposed to teach the law were the ones who were breaking it to the utmost. There was no law that they weren't breaking by putting God to death. We're supposed to see these, these people who are living obediently to God and helping others know God and love God and fear God, and yet they're living completely differently. And this isn't the first time that we, we see this kind of, of lifestyle in these, these men. Just in Luke alone, we see uh, Luke eleven forty two to 43, when Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Or Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Or Luke 20, 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the place of honor at feasts. These people were given this position and this opportunity to serve God and point people towards him, but they are the greatest of, of hypocrites. It's like the, the vegan who talks about how great that lifestyle is, right? It's so good to be vegan. And then you find out they're eating a bacon cheeseburger, <laughs> which is a great choice. A better choice than being a vegan. I'm sorry if I offended anybody. <laughs> it's the, the, the natural bodybuilder, the natural athlete who's doing everything they can to try and become fast and strong and telling everybody about what they're doing. And then you find out later that they're, they're taking some pills, right? It's finding out that dude perfect, 
uses a green screen sometimes, and not every one of those shots goes in. Those hypocrites. <laughs> but of course, this is, this is so much worse, because it, it's not some mundane thing. It's not some meaningless thing that we're talking about. We're, we're talking about putting Jesus to death, that the hypocrisy that they're involved in is all-out rebellion. What they wanted most wasn't to love God and fear God. What they wanted most was the continued power and control that their positions gave them. They loved the world that they were a part of. The world that they were a part of gave them everything they wanted. And so they were willing to do anything to protect it. They feared the people more than they feared God, and they were willing to put Jesus to death because of it. See, if Jesus, if he continues on his current path, if he continues to, to get people around him who, who want to see him lead them and save them, and especially on, on a weekend, on a week as, as important as the Passover feast, this, this national holiday where people were supposed to come and, and give sacrifices and offerings. They were supposed to praise God, reminding themselves of his great work in saving the Israelites out of Egypt from the gods, from Pharaoh, from everything evil and wicked. He brought them out and made them their own nation. It is a time of national pride and celebration. And if Jesus uses that and grows bigger and bigger, bigger and, and more people follow him, they know, the scribes, the Pharisees, everybody who is part of that power knows what will happen. They say it in John eleven forty seven 47 to 52. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, including the scribes and everybody, and said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come. And they'll take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. See, in, in their minds, they're, they're also doing this great work. If Jesus, if he actually, if he actually leads these people in, in rebellion, the Romans are going to come, the temple's gone, the nation of Israel's gone, our positions are gone, every, everything is gone. We're not just trying to protect ourselves, we're trying, to, we're trying to protect all of Israel. If it happens and we don't stop Jesus, imagine the reality that will happen. The problem was, they were so in love with this, this world. No matter how broken or, or, or rotten it was, no matter how many things were wrong with it, they loved it so much that they were missing the greater, greater reality of God incarnate, God with us in the person of Jesus in front of them. They were willing to put that person who was coming into the world to save it to death because when you love what you have and when you love what you look at most, you don't think you need salvation. So the question that, that comes from this, this first section is simply this. What do you love most? Or maybe what do you fear losing most? For the scribes and the Pharisees, it's clear. Their, their positions, the power, the authority, the acclaim. They love the honor. And they, they were willing to sin greatly to protect it. But what about us? What are we most holding on to? See, I, as I was preparing... 
it, it hit me that I think a lot of us, and I'm speaking of me, really love this present world. I, I think we really love what we see and we taste and we touch and we experience. And it's not all for uh, you know, evil intentions or reasons. God has made this earth. God, God has made everything and he's made it good. It, it, is, it is good. It is glorious. It's a reflection of, of who he is as a person. In creation, we see his, his glory. We're supposed to be led to worship him through this. The problem is we usually st stop with creation and we worship it. We think that it is the thing that is going to fulfill us and satisfy us and give us everything we want. But it's not. It's supposed to be a representation of God's goodness, his grace for us. We can act like there's nothing greater than, than the here and now. We've, we've experienced nothing more, right? So we hold on to our, our family, our work, those, those vacations, exploring this wonderful planet, our, our futures and retirements, our health and our happiness. We, we think about the next milestone that we can hold on to, that we can have. And it's easy for our hearts to actually fixate and love this world more than God himself. It's easy to miss that, that God is greater and, and more worthy of our Sunday mornings with his gathered people than sleeping in. Our, our daily pattern of, of prayer and, and reading and memorizing scripture. Being with God and, and, and tithing, giving our money and sacrificing and serving the church and the world is, is better than being served. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What do we love most? What are our hearts holding on to most? And what needs to be put to death in our lives so that we could love God? Like I said, for the chief priests, for the scribes, for the Pharisees, the temple, the nation of Israel was the thing that they had to hold on to. And because, because it had to be held on to, they were willing, they were willing to kill Jesus for it. But the reality is, it's better that they lost the temple, that they lost the nation, that they lost their very lives, and they held on to Jesus. Amen. There's nothing better. This question, uh, I hope it's stirring something in you, and I hope that you don't just kind of rush on from it. I hope that you would go and you would maybe think and pray or journal. Maybe go and grab a coffee or, or a lunch with somebody and talk about this. Because this matters deeply. Because what we see is, is our fear and our loves will drive us to great sin. And if Jesus is not the one that we love most, our lives are going to be off, off course right from the beginning. But we don't just see the, the scribes and Pharisees as this opposition out there. We also see this, this addition of, of Satan in, in verse 3. And, and he shows up with very little fanfare and very little explanation. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was a number of the twelve. If this is your devotions, you might just kind of glance over it and just kind of keep going, right? There's not much in there. It's just kind of his name. And he enters into Judas, and then the passage just kind of continues. 
I want to pause and say, well, what does this actually mean? What does this mean for us as, as Christians? Or if you're not a Christian here, what does this mean for you? Who is Satan? What is his work? How, how, is, how is he present in this world? Let's look at some of those questions now. So Satan, uh, we don't just meet him here. He, he shows up all the way from, from Genesis 3 and is all the way to Revelation 20. He is around for the, the whole Bible. Some of his names include the devil, the serpent, Beelzebub, the ruler of this world, the deceiver, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the serpent, the great dragon. He's called the father of lies and a liar from the beginning. He's one who appears as an angel of light who roams around like a roaring lion looking for those to devour. He's a murderer, the originator of temptation and of sin. And we meet him first, like I said, in the Garden of Eden in, in chapter 3 of Genesis. But originally, before then, he was one of the angels in heaven who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven and down to earth. We read about that in 2 Peter 2, 4 and in Jude verse 6. But Revelation 12, 7 and 9 gives us the best picture of what exactly happened. This is what it says. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. And Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, tried to rebel against God, tried to become God, but was cast out of heaven. That Sometime after God has finished the work of creation, and he's called it all good, and Genesis 3, when he shows up in the garden. But since his rebellion, the work of Satan has been to try and destroy the work of God and the people of God. Since that time in the beginning until the very end, that will be his, his work. And Jesus tells us exactly what he is like and what he will do in John 10.10. 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Satan's original desire was to be God, and he gave that same temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you take this fruit, you will know good and evil, and you will be like God. His work since that time of being cast down has been to try and destroy God's people and God's plan. But it hasn't just been kind of an out there thing. We meet Satan first in the book of Luke in chapter 4. After, after Jesus is, is baptized and he goes out into the desert and for 40 days and 40 nights he's fasting and praying, Satan shows up and tries to tempt him. There's three temptations. The first being, Jesus, you're hungry. Just turn these uh, rocks into loaves of bread and you can, you can be filled. The second temptation was, Jesus, look, I'll show you all the nations on the world. You don't have to go through with the plan of suffering, of anything else. You don't have to go through with God's plan. Just bow down and worship me and all this is yours. And the third temptation, he takes him to the top of the temple and says, if God really loves you, jump off this temple and he, he'll send angels to keep you from falling. But after Jesus is obedient and submissive to the will and the plan of, of God, Satan leaves him. See, where, where Adam and Eve, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And this is what, this is what the passage says, Luke 4, 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
And in our passage today, in verse 6, we see this opportune time. So he consented, speaking of, of Judas, he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the crowd. He's back with the goal of, of stopping Jesus before he can fulfill the plan. Now he's got not just himself in the desert, but he has the chief priests and the scribes. He has, he has Judas. He has this, this group of people on board with putting the author of life to death. And maybe with the death of Jesus, maybe if he does this, he'll finally succeed in his plan for spiritual dominion. That's all great. What does it mean for us? What does Satan's existence and, and, and Satan entering to Judas mean for you and I? Well, there's two things. First off, we, we need to be aware that, that Satan is real, that, that he exists, that, that he's not some fairy tale or myth. We need to see that, that that is a reality that we need to be prepared for. But the second thing is, we also need to see that not everything is Satan. Not every sin and rebellion and disobedience is, is Satan's work in our lives. Uh, this is what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to 14 tells us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptations, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We need to be very clear in our minds that not every time we have temptations or we have thoughts in our hearts and our minds that desire to sin, that that is Satan attacking us or that is Satan possessing us or taking over. Our flesh desires sin. And we need to know that. But like I said first, we, we do need to know that the reality is that Satan exists and he does want to attack God's work and God's people. This is what 1 John 3, 8 to 10 says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, the Bible speaks of us being saved as sons of disobedience, saved out of that life, saved out of being under the power of the prince of the power of the air. When the, the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts, when he has saved us, we are no longer submissive to the will of Satan. We are, we are no longer captive to his ways and we can serve God. This is what Ephesians 6, 11 to 13 tells us as followers of Jesus we should be doing. We should put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Our text shows us that, that Satan entered into Judas, yes. But the passage also talks about how it's Judas himself who goes and confers with the high priests. It, it's, it's Judas himself who makes the plan, who accepts the payment, who goes through with it, who looks for the opportunity to betray Jesus. 
It's less of a demon possession in the sense of Satan takes over and Judas has no will of his own and has no thoughts of his own and has no desires of his own. It's more of a partnership where Judas is willingly doing the work of Satan and he is joining with Satan in the work to oppose the plan of God and Jesus and the people of God. And this should, should give us pause and should make our, our radars go up and, and humble us. Because we're not just alone with our sin, there's also a spiritual battle happening at the same time. We need to be aware that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for those to devour. He's looking to steal and kill and destroy. And for us, as Christians, for us to play with sin... To, to, to flirt with evil and to take it lightly is utterly foolish. It's opening the, the door to demonic activity and, and, and to, to partnering with Satan. Sometimes we can think that it's all Satan just attacking us. In reality, we're just living habitually sinful lives, rebelling daily. And so here's my question. Where are you living in rebellion to God? When you, when you look at your life, where are you living in sin, flirting with it? Where are you not putting sin to death, but, but getting comfortable with things like lust and pornography, with anger and greed, with gluttony and with envy, with jealousy and dissensions, with drunkenness and with gluttony? Where are you comfortable with sin? Allowing it to dwell in your life without pushing back, without fighting against it, without trying to kill it. See, what we need deeply, we deeply need to be surrounded by the church, by the spirit and by the word of God. When, when we're surrounded by the church, it's a lot harder to hide our sin, right? When we're constantly reading the word of God and reminding ourselves of his goodness and his grace and his, his ways that are righteous for us, it's hard to continue to walk in sin. And when we are constantly asking the spirit to convict us, we can't hide our battle is not with flesh and blood alone. It's with the principalities and power of Satan and his demons. But the good news for us who are Christians is that we can trust God in this because he's greater than Satan and he has given us power through the Holy Spirit to repel uh, Satan's presence and power in our lives. This is what 1 John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. We don't need to look for, for Satan behind every rock and every sin. But we do need to be aware that he is wanting to destroy the work of God even in our lives. We need to not live in sin, not walk in sin, not love sin, not wake up and look forward to sin. We need to put it to death in our lives. We need to be people who are quick to repent and quick to allow the spirit of God to convict us of sin and respond in repentance. Now, so far in the passage, it's really easy to look and, and to look out there. there. There's lots of opposition out there. It's easy to be frustrated with what's happening out there, but it's not just out there that's the problem. And in verses three to six, we, we do meet Judas, and we see that the problem is in the individual as much as it's 
in all the places of power and authority and with Satan and his demons. And so the next thing I want to talk about is the opposition from in here. And we meet Judas in, in verses 3 to 6. And this is what it says. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, the thing with Judas is we, we know about uh, as much of Judas as lots of people who kind of just show up in the New Testament. He, his name pops up a bunch of times, but that's about it. Uh, he shows up four times in Matthew, three times in Mark, eight times in Luke, and four times uh, in the Gospel of John. And every single time, it's basically just introducing him as one of the 12 apostles or part of, of Jesus' crew. And every single time that he is introduced, there's a little tag or it's right in the text where it says, and he's the betrayer. Or he's the, tr he's the one who would betray Jesus. There's only one story in all of the Gospels that actually gives us a little bit of an understanding about who Judas was, why he was hanging out with Jesus, his heart, his desire to be with God. And it comes from John 12, 1 to 6. And in John 12, 1 to 6, we see the story. Six days before the Passover, so around the time of our passage, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many therefore took a pound of, uh, Mary, sorry, therefore took a pound of ex expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This is the fullness of the character of, of Judas that we see outside of him betraying Jesus. And what we see is that he was a man who was a thief who was preoccupied with money. He, he loved money. And what we know about money is it is a root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now here's the thing, we don't actually know that much about Judas's faith. The Gospels don't actually tell us if he actually believed and fell away, if he loved God for a time and then stopped. We, we don't know any of that all we know is that Judas never gets past the point of calling Jesus rabbi or teacher. The other disciples get past that and they call him Savior and Lord and Messiah, Son of God. They, they get it, but it doesn't seem like Judas ever does. And it doesn't seem like he's hanging out with, with Jesus because he wants, he wants God. He, he wants what comes with it, the The money. His heart craved money, and that's where he wandered into this habitual sin that opened him up for temptation and for oppression and for demonic partnership. See, it's not that Satan took him over and he was forced to do these things. This was already in his heart. 
See, Judas saw the writing on the wall that Jesus is coming to this place where he's, he's going to be put to death. He keeps talking about it. If, if you're hanging around Jesus, he keeps saying it, I'm going to be put to death. And if Jesus is put to death, then the money purse is gone because nobody's putting money in. And I have no reason to stay here. I might as well get one last payday. He just joins forces with Satan in what Satan is trying to do. See, it's, it's easy to say, look, there's these, these injustices, these powers, those oppositional forces against Jesus. But Judas reminds us that the problem of sin is in our hearts too. It comes from within, from our own desires, from our own sins, from the rebellion that is naturally in us. It starts with our own sinful, fleshly hearts. James 1, 14, 15 says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Judas's love for money was what got his heart snagged, and what allowed him to be drawn into such an act as betraying the Son of God. So what I want to remind us of is this. The problem is not just out there. The problem is in us. We, we want sin. We want to steal God's glory. We want to make this world all about us. We want those things naturally. But there's great warning in the passage that we should be careful not to partner with sin to get what we want. Because when we partner with sin, we're going to get more than we bargained for. Christian, if you're listening, do not let sin get a foothold in your life. Put it to death and pursue Jesus. So this is our passage today. Very encouraging, very light. Where's the hope, right? Well, the hope, the hope is in here. It's not explicit, but it's what this passage points to. It's what this passage shows us is true of God and his, his purposes and his plan. See, I said the first point is, is the opposition to God is great. And, and the first way to understand that is it's great in terms of there's lots of it. There's lots of opposition to God. But the other way of understanding the opposition of God is, is great is that God is going to use this opposition for his glory. Amen. It doesn't end here. Even though these, these groups who have gathered together think that this is the end, think that they are going to prevail against Jesus and God's plan, what they don't understand is nothing can stop the plan of God. When you look at the person of, of Judas, you might think, oh, what a terrible person. Oh, how could he do this? This act of betrayal, and yet when you read Acts 1, 16 to 22, you see this. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Judas wasn't an oopsie. He, he was part of the plan. Same with the scribes and the chief priests. John 11, 47, 52, when, when Caiaphas has, has brought all the people together to try and, and kill Jesus and put him to death, it says this, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this on his own accord. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Or in Acts 2, to 24, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. No earthly power could defeat it. It was there to fulfill the plan. The opposition to God might seem great, but nothing can defeat God's plan. And even Satan, who from the beginning has tried to destroy the work of God and the people of God, from Genesis 3.15 on, we see that his end is always sure. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall crush, uh, sorry, you, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Wow, I couldn't get that right. <laughs> or Romans 16.20, I'll get this one right and it's better. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And we see the future promise in Revelation 20.10. The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The opposition to God seems great. The opposition in our lives may seem great, but the plan of God cannot be stopped. Nothing can succeed if God has willed it. This is the great news that we have. This passage seems heavy and seems harsh, and yet it points to the hope we have of the gospel. Jesus had to die. That was the, that was the plan. That wasn't, that wasn't an addition. That, that was the plan. You saw it in Abraham and Isaac in, in Genesis 22, or in, in Isaiah 53, when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The plan was always that Jesus was going to die, and that on the cross he was going to fulfill all the plans of God. He's going to take the, the Passover lamb and show its fulfillment. We're going to look at that next week. But how his blood would cover anyone who by faith trusted in him. That is what we hold on to. That is what we cling to. That is the good news for us between Christmas and Easter. That God has come and that God has died for us. And here's how I want to leave you. 
See, because we can see God's plan for salvation from before the creation of eternity, before the creation of the world, before time began, we can see his hand guiding everything to the right place at the right time so the sacrifice of Jesus would steal the victory of death, would seal the defeat of Satan, and would give us defeat of sin. If that is true, then we can continue to trust in him today. And to close, I want to read a passage from Romans 8 that should be on our lips, that should be on our hearts, that we should be dwelling on because this is the good news. Romans 8, 28 to 39 says this. We know that those, sorry, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who, he, who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. Who are regarded, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The opposition sometimes feels great. Yet nothing can stop the plan of God. God's will is for the salvation of his people. And there is no sickness. There is no angels or demons. There is nothing in this world that can stop it. That is the peace that we can go this year with, to today with. And so my hope is that we would be people who trust in that salvation, who trust in that God, who love him and fear him more than everything else. Would you pray with me to that end? Jesus, would you please for, forgive us when we, we look at the circumstances of our lives, when we look at the, the trials and the temptations, when we look at the ways that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, and God, we get frustrated and we think that it's, it's, it's too much. God, would you give us eyes to by faith see these promises that you've given us? That God, your plans will come to pass and there's nothing that can oppose them. God, your will for our salvation will happen. You are the, the author, the one who begins it and the perfecter, the one who completes it. Would we trust you with our very lives and would we love you more than anything in this world, anything created? Would we love you above all? Help us this year, Father to put sin to death, to, to create patterns in our lives that would help us to know you and love you more deeply. 
God, we pray this for your glory, for our good, and for our salvation. God, do this work in us, we pray. Amen.